Uh, we've come in our study of the uh, my, uh, minor prophets to the, the book of Zechariah. That's where we'll uh, find ourselves this evening. We started in a, a chapter 11, uh, but I just want to uh, read uh, from uh, verse uh, 7 to the end of the chapter. Uh, Lord willing, we'll uh, get uh, this uh, chapter 11 finished this evening. So I shepherd the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took myself two staves, the one I called favor, and the other I called union. So I shepherded the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. Then I said, I will not shepherd you. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who remain consume one another's flesh. And I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had cut with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. And thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then Yahweh said to me, throw it to the potter that valuable price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. Then I cut in pieces my second staff, union, to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then Yahweh said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who face annihilation seek the young, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will consume the flesh of the fat and tear off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who forsakes the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally dried up and his right eye will be utterly dimmed. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we do feel the weight and the pressure of these words. We have already uh, studied uh, your animosity and your hatred uh, for false shepherds who lead the sheep astray. We ask by the Holy Spirit that you would come and guide us. We trust in the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to be with us and teach us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now for uh, visitors, just to bring you up to speed a little bit, the, the chapter 11 uh, is called an enacted uh, parable. In verses 1 through 3, uh, there are uh, words against uh, the false shepherds. And then uh, verse uh, 4 through uh, 17 uh, is this enacted parable. God tells Zechariah to do certain things uh, that are pictures. We have gone from uh, verses 4 through 6 where God says in verse 4, shepherd the flock doomed to slaughter. He gives instructions. And then verse 7, uh, we're in that section right now. Zechariah says, so I shepherded them. He uh, is answering the call. Uh, last week, we were in the middle of looking at uh, verse 8. I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. We've seen this throughout the, 
the, the prophets, haven't we? The animosity between the, the preacher, the prophet, and the people. Uh, you remember uh, the one prophet, they said, don't, don't preach in the gates anymore. Don't say it. Uh, the, the other man came to Amos and he said, just go back to where the king's mad at you. Go back to where you came from. Uh, we looked a little bit at, uh, at Luke 11 last week and we saw that uh, there was animosity between Jesus and the, and the, uh, the Pharisees as well. He, he talked to them. He uh, issued those woes and then he reiterates the charges that the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, uh, lands on that generation. In, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the narrative there, it says the scribes and Pharisees then began to be very hostile. They questioned him closely on many subjects, and it just fits exactly with Zechariah. But we also have been uh, saying that we have to look at the past and the present and the future. This is always the way prophets have been treated. That's what Jesus' point was. It's the way they treated him. It's the way they treated the apostles. The summary statement by Jesus concerning uh, Jerusalem later on is, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. That is the, the, the final thing that happens. Uh, the, the disciples point out in Matthew 24, uh, that uh, look at these buildings, look at these uh, beautiful stones, and Jesus says uh, there's not going to be one uh, left on top uh, of another. This animosity we saw continued until uh, the crucifixion, didn't it? And uh, T.V. Moore says that uh, the uh, enemies of Christ gloated in fiendish delight over his agony uh, on the cross. Uh, the conclusion that we came to in this enacted parable is that the three shepherds may have been in uh, Zechariah's day, three different people, uh, but that uh, Jesus takes the place of all the prophets, uh, the, the priest and the king. The, uh, the whole system uh, of the Jewish nation was wiped out and Christ uh, takes the place uh, once again, T.V. Moore talks about that, annihilating the three shepherds. And he says, if, if, if you just thought of Jesus' three offices, you, you would get it. And he says, everybody goes around and through all these things and tries to figure out this and that. You remember we said there was, there was almost 40 opinions on these shepherds. But we, we, we said that it's a spiritual emphasis, so it's not physical kings or this or that. And uh, he says, all those other things got wiped out. And what's left is Jesus as the prophet and the priest and the king. So uh, that's uh, where we were. We, we are in the uh, section, uh, Zechariah answers the call from verse 7 to 17. We looked at his obedience. We looked at the gracious shepherding method, the two, the two staffs. You remember one of the writers says nobody, can, nobody watches over and shepherds God's people like God does. He, he shepherds with the, with the beauty and the union. Then the destruction of the false prophets we just looked at, uh, they're destroyed and this spiritual uh, conflict. And now the dissolution of the shepherd covenant relationship in verses 9 through uh, 11. These uh, shepherds were removed and, and now there's uh, further judgment. Notice verse 9. It just uh, God just says, 
I'm not going to shepherd. I'm not going to shepherd anymore. What is going to die is going to die. What's going to be annihilated, that's the word the LSB uses, annihilation completely wiped out. Those left, there'll be internal strife. There'll be the abuse of their afflicted and uh, reminds us of, of Romans where it says God gave them over. Uh, uh, Barnes says he leaves the rebellious soul to itself and the rebellious soul just gets, the, gets what it really uh, desires. Uh, the result is this destruction and horror. In the past, there is a, a record of uh, two uh, Jewish women that agreed that they would eat one son on one day and one on the other day. And in the siege in Rome, there's records that it really was the same. These, these things uh, came to pass. It, it's, a, it's a horrible thing to think of. Uh, but you reject God. You, you leave yourself open to all sorts of horrible things. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 17. God says, if you don't follow me, I'm going to cause all these things uh, to happen. Jeremiah 15, verses 1 through 3. I was going to read these, but for the sake of time, I won't. Basically the same thing. Here's my law. If you don't follow it, I'm going to turn the thing upside down. I believe we've studied these things enough to understand that, that this, this is the issue. Here's idolatry. Here's disobedience. And God sends prophets and warns and warns and warns and warns. And then finally, uh, he acts. Trapp says, fury is not in God's hands till our sins put the thunderbolts into God's hands. And then, who knows the power of your anger? He uses a verse from Psalm 90, verse 11. Who knows the power of God's anger? We come to verse 10, another symbolic action in this uh, enacted parable. The staff... Favor is cut in pieces. Uh, beyond the horrors of annihilation and being without a shepherd is the judicial breaking of covenant engagements by God himself. You could be, you could be besieged by the Babylonians. You could be besieged by the Romans. But the worst thing that could ever happen to you is if God breaks his covenant with you and says, that's it, I'm going to abandon you. It's a reminder to us not to stray far from the Lord. The staff of favor uh, was cut in pieces, and God says the purpose was to break the covenant. The ESV says it, it was annulled, it was dissolved. It was as if it never happened. And uh, the LSB uses the term, uh, which I had cut, literally that's what it means, you cut a covenant, and it, it harkens back to the time when uh, God told Abraham to cut the animals in pieces and, and he would pass through it. And then look how extensive it is, he says, with all the peoples. The covenant was made with a nation, regardless of their spiritual uh, state. It was made with all the people. He said, I've chosen you as a whole nation and I'm going to make my covenant available to you. Uh, Paul says in in Romans, they had all these things, didn't they? All these privileges. It was made with the whole nation. And here he says, this is what I'm going to do with all the peoples. It's extensive. His mercy was revealed. And now he says, I'm taking it away 
from all the people amid all the idolatry of the years and the prophets coming he turns and says i'm turning away it's going to be broken with all the peoples uh, next verse 11 uh, the afflicted sheep and the work of the lord and this is interesting if you notice he says so it was broken on that day god didn't waste any time we, we need to understand that as well that that god's judgment can come very swiftly it was broken on that day and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the lord uh, excuse me the afflicted did it the afflicted understood what was going on and, and i would submit to you there are always there are always people that understand what god is doing and that this is the lord you remember you remember this man shimei he was throwing stones and cursing david and somebody said well should i go cut his head off and david says no that's the lord let him speak and david had that sense hezekiah uh, foolishly told the babylonian visitors come and see all the stuff that's in the in the the treasury and isaiah is right there afterwards right it's classic did you show them everything that's in the treasury he says yeah he says well someday uh, they're going to come and get it all and hezekiah says that's the word of the lord so so here god acts we remember Isaiah, one of his kids was swift as the booty and speedy as the play, Meher Shalal Ashbaz or something like that. And it just meant God's judgment is coming fast. But, but those of us who are Christians, the discerning afflicted, the remnant, the true Israelites, they understand this is right. Judgment should come. We understand judgment should come on the United States of America. It should come hard. It should come right away. He should break the covenant, and it should happen tomorrow. Now we say, well, well, what would happen to us? Well, all the prophets faced it, didn't they? What are we going to do with Jeremiah? Throw him in a cistern. If he dies, he dies. We don't want to hear what he says to say anyway. What are we going to do with Jesus? Get rid of him. The best thing is for this one guy to die, and then this whole thing will die out. But we feel it in our hearts. Many of the prophets saw the results of the judgment come down on their lives while they, were, while they were still living. And he provides us with the observation Zechariah does. The afflicted of the flock knew that it was God that was doing it. And if we saw judgment, if we saw things, we would say that is what the United States of America deserves. That is what this country deserves or that country deserves. Then in our enacted parable, we come to verses uh, 12 and 13. This is the, the picture uh, of the 30 pieces. And, and remember, this was your uh, homework assignment. Uh, but uh, first of all, verse 12 and 13 will show us several things. It reveals uh, the contempt of those who reject Yahweh's message. But it also links these events to over 500 years later, when another good shepherd is rejected in Jerusalem. Uh, a comparative walk through the passage. We'll look at Zechariah and Judas uh, together. Uh, Zechariah enacted the prophecy, and it was fulfilled by the actions of uh, Judas, who went after the 30 pieces of silver to betray Christ. Uh, 
So here it is mentioned, they gave him 30 pieces of silver as his wage. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. And uh, Judas went after that. We saw the, uh, the catalyst for it this morning in Maitland was the um, anointing uh, of Jesus by Mary. And uh, Judas and the disciples says, well, what's going on here? This is a waste. It says they were indignant. And, uh, and John says uh, Judas wasn't really concerned about the poor. He wanted that money. So first of all, Zechariah enacted the prophecy and it was fulfilled by Judas. Second of all, Zechariah and Judas both approached corrupt shepherds for their wages. Uh, Zechariah, in the context, goes to those who don't treat him the right way. He's not going to the afflicted of verse 11, but to others. Thirdly, Zechariah and Judas were both given a relatively small sum of money for their labor. The, the price was only the price of a slave, Exodus 21, 32. If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver and the ox uh, shall be stoned. Uh, it shows the low amount of money that Zechariah was given because God tells him in the next verse, throw it back. Is that, is that what they think? Is that what they think it's worth? Just throw it back to them. And so that's another uh, that's another uh, similarity. They both uh, threw that money uh, back and, and Yahweh told Zechariah, throw it back to the potter. There's an irony. He says this valuable price as which I was valued by them. Well, it's really not a, it's really not a lot. Uh, uh, the ESV says the lordly price as which I was priced. The, the price that Zechariah received is too small. It's an insult. Uh, so Yahweh has them throw it back. The, the money that they both received was small, but the, the amount was, was thrown back at some point. Yahweh tells Zechariah, throw it to the potter. In this case, the potter may be somebody who's working on the temple. A potter took raw material and built things out of it. They, they built vessels or they built other things. Uh, it also alludes uh, to the potter's field in the New Testament. Uh, but the physical potter could have been there, and Zechariah took that money in the enacted parable and just threw it back. Uh, and the potter is, interestingly enough, uh, uh, the end of verse uh, 13, threw them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. Uh, Judas ends up back in the temple throwing the, the, his money uh, back. Uh, it's not enough for Zechariah, but evidently it was enough for Judas temporarily. Uh, the greed, his greed was at the core. His heart was at the core. The 30 pieces of silver for about an hour's work, it seemed like, boy, that's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take their offer. And uh, like I said, it, it, it seems like a lot to a greedy soul just to get some money. All I got to do is get a band of soldiers, walk up this hill, point out a guy, kiss him on the cheek, and that's it for 30 pieces of silver, I'll do it. Uh, we talked about the catalyst, Mary anointed Jesus, John 12, 1 through 6, Matthew 26, uh, Mark 14. Uh, the disciples and Judas showed indignation. They said it was a waste uh, we looked at this as a, 
a spontaneous act of love that, that Mary did uh, to anoint Jesus, he says, for his burial. And it was spontaneous because he wasn't, he wasn't dead. And she had a brother that just died, but here's this expensive ointment that's, that's still there in the house. And I think writers correctly say Mary knew Jesus was going to die very soon. She believed what he had been saying all along. The disciples write, I'm going to be betrayed by the chief priests and be killed and raised again on the third day. And they're like, uh, they didn't understand. I think Mary understood. I think those writers are right. And she had that on her heart. But John's commentary about Judas is he didn't really care for the poor. But he had this bag that they used for the money that they needed day by day. And Judas used to steal out of the bag. And his, in his mind and in his heart, he said, if I could have 300 denarii in that bag, I'd be all right. I'd be set. What is the price of the life of the Son of God? Do you think about that? <laughs> Zechariah gets 30 pieces. God says, throw it back. Judas gets 30 pieces. He, that's, his, that's his catch. That's his big payday. But the price of the life of the Son of God, how could such a transaction e even take place? And then fourthly, the outcome of Zechariah's transaction and Judas's transaction is bad. God tells Zechariah, throw it back. Judas comes back. Judas returns to the priests and elders and confesses his sin I have sinned because I've betrayed innocent blood in one of the most crass hypocr hypocrisy to the max things. They say, to, they say to him, what is that to us? You, you see to it. Can you imagine that? We gave you the money to betray them and now you're remorseful because you betrayed an innocent man. But he's going to the cross. He's going to die. That's what we wanted. And they just say, what's that to us? You take, you, you see to it. Not, not in the temple treasury. They can't put the money back because it's the price of blood. They know exactly what it is. I know that if I repented and believed in Jesus, I'd be saved and I would have eternal life. But I just don't want to do that. I don't want to obey. I don't want to do the right thing. How, how could they do that? The similarities then, the, the conclusion, the similarities of these two accounts are, are undeniable. And they help us to see the, this constant enmity between Yahweh's prophets, Yahweh's son, and the false shepherds and leaders of, of all the generations. Uh, and then the fulfillment uh, of the prophecy is in uh, Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 9 and 10. Uh, after Judas has remorse, uh, they took counsel and they, they bought with the money the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood, Akaldama, to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying... And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. That's very similar to Zechariah, right? The people set the price and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me, just, just uh, as God directed Zechariah. Now our, uh, uh, assignment, uh, our assignment was to do some research and find out uh, 
why or how uh, that uh, Matthew says it's fulfilled by Jeremiah when it's word for word what we find in Zechariah. That was our homework assignment. Anybody from the church in Maitland is uh, excused. But nobody from the church in Titusville. <laughs> so it was to think about or study why Matthew would say that. And uh, we, we are going to work on that answer. Uh, the passage is nearly word for word of what Zechariah says. But since we're studying the prophets, uh, you may have thought that this was a symbolic homework assignment. <laughs> or, or, or it was an allusion to a homework assignment, and you didn't do it. But if you did some study, uh, good for you, the Berean spirit lives on. Uh, uh, one, of the, one of the brothers uh, did quite a bit of study and, and was texting me what he thought and where, where he was uh, finding information. Now, we've done this before, I think, but uh, we, we always have to approach passages the same way. And I think we've done this uh, a top-down or the broadest category to the, to the least. The, the first thing when we approach anything like this is, is to understand that all Scripture is inspired. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed. Uh, ESV says, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this teaching and this is profitable for us to think through this and to work through it. There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't understand that at first, but I know all scripture is inspired, so I'll start there. That's what we have to do. The receiving prophet or the writer, Zechariah, and other Old Testament writers knew that they were commanded by God to speak the words that they spoke. So all scripture is inspired by God. The receiving prophet knew it was the word of God. Uh, uh, Zechariah 11.4, thus says Yahweh my God, that's what he said to Zechariah. Verse 11, uh, the afflicted knew that it was the word of the Lord. Here even the people in the congregation, they understood. This is all God's word. This is God's doing. Uh, Matthew 27, those words that are, are God's doing. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 11, then Yahweh said to me. Verse 15, then Yahweh said to me. All scripture is inspired by God and the receiving prophet understands that it's God's word. The fulfilling writer also knows the passage to be God's word because, because they're, they're banging the head of the nail down, aren't they? When Matthew says this was fulfilled, what is he saying? It's profound, isn't it? Fulfilled prophecy is profound. He's saying what happened 500 years ago has relevance for right now today. Amen. He's saying what God has said he would do, he's doing. And this is fulfilled. It doesn't matter if we don't understand why Jeremiah. It doesn't matter what we don't understand it. Matthew knows what he's talking about. If we know anything about Matthew, we know that his whole prophecy is all about fulfillment. There's 23 or 24 uh, uh, prophecies that he says this was fulfilled by Isaiah. This was fulfilled by this. 
The Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament writers to put those passages in their writings and many connections of the Old Testament and the New Testament were, were put together. And, and over and over in the study of the Minor Prophets, people have mentioned it. I've seen how everything is all connected. It's connected because God is the God of history. God is the God of providence. God is the God who called the beginning to the end and knows what's going to happen. Amen. When we got to Zechariah 9 and it said, Behold your king humble and, and, and lowly and riding on a, a donkey. We saw that right there. When we looked at Hosea in chapter 11, it says, out of, out of Egypt, I called my son. We'd say, well, what is that all about? And then the New Testament comes and shows us what it's all about. And we know six or 700 years later, when Joseph picked up Mary and Jesus and took them to Egypt, it fulfilled a prophecy. So the receiving prophet, they knew it. The fulfilling writer, they knew it. And Matthew knew it on purpose. God's purposes come to life in specific fulfillments. Where is Jesus supposed to be born? And Micah 5.2 says, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Remember when we studied it, the list of, the list of all the towns in, in Joshua, Bethlehem isn't even there. It says, you're so little, they, they, they don't even know. You're a dot on the map. But what happens? The, the great shepherd king is born there and he comes out. Amen. And Matthew says, this is what Micah said. So he demonstrates us, demonstrates to us. He uses fulfill and fulfilled 11 times. He also uses the word spoken to, to mark those words. Now, this uh, purposeful gospel, right? Matthew wrote on purpose, connects the Old Testament and the New Testament and verifies that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David and the savior of the world. We've, we've seen that over and over again. So as we come top down, all scripture is inspired. Receiving prophet understood it. Fulfilling prophet understood it. Then we come to the unity of scripture. And the fact that Matthew says Jeremiah's words fulfill the prophecy that are almost all Zechariah's words show us the view that their message is one message. If you did, if you did your homework, if you did your homework, you may have come on some of these verses. But but think of the unity uh, of the scriptures. Matthew eleven thirteen. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. All the prophets and the law prophesied. The law didn't prophesy though, but the law is a collected, uh, it's collected writings, isn't it? And all the prophets, you see, it's the unity of Scripture. Does it matter then, in a sense, if we say Jeremiah or Zechariah? No, because they both say the same thing. Their words are trustworthy. Their words are the word of God. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish what the law and the prophets. How can you sum up, how can you sum up 39 books in two words? That's the unity of Scripture, isn't it? Oh, we don't. We're not liberals, right? We don't say, well, the first half of Isaiah is this, and then there's second Isaiah, 
and they call it Deutero-Isaiah. They give it a fancy term. And then uh, way back when in Bible college, they had three or four authors of the book of Micah, and Micah couldn't have written that, and he couldn't wrote, have written that, but maybe this and maybe that. And it's all torn up. It's not Jesus' view of the scripture. It's not Peter's view. It's not Paul's view. It's not Matthew's view. The view is that they all say the same thing. John 1.45, Philip says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. All of them wrote about the same thing. It's the unity of scripture. If you worked on the assignment, you may have uh, been uh, directed or come to uh, um, Mark chapter 1 and verse 2. And that's interesting. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Well, only... Half of that comes from Isaiah. The rest is from uh, Malachi, verse, verse 1. So th this is where they're put together. But what's the point? If it's Malachi who says it or Isaiah, they're saying the same thing. The Savior's coming, and here's how he's coming. And here's his, here's his uh, messenger. He's like a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Verse 2, from Malachi. Verse 3, uh, from Isaiah. Uh, the, com the combined Jeremiah and Zechariah passage is a little more difficult to discern, uh, but there's hints of these components in uh, Jeremiah 32 and Jeremiah 19. And uh, we've studied the, the term allusions. And uh, uh, just to make sure you understand, an allusion is an expression that's designed to call something to mind without mentioning it explicitly. It's an indirect or passing reference. So, so the writers sometimes uh, refer to something and you say, you know, that sounds like this verse or that sounds like one of the Psalms. Uh, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because like I said, there was, there was quite a few opinions but the main point of Jeremiah 32, 6 through 9, is he's told to go and purchase a field at the direction of God, which was to be a sign of the people. And there was an exchange of money, and the purchase place was, was not near Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah 19 has different facets and connections. Uh, he's told to, uh, to buy a potter's earthenware jar or flask. And then it's done in front of many people, very much like uh, Zechariah. It's done in many people. He goes outside the city and proclaims a message of judgment. Uh, and then the vessel is thrown down and the vessel can't be put back to, together. Uh, so th the Jeremiah uh, prophecies are just illusions. It, it sounds like it. He buys something. He, he, he has this thing. He's showing a message of this covenant being uh, broken. Uh, but the, the bulk of the words are word for word from uh, Zechariah. So as we look at that, we fifthly have to remember the power of one fulfilled prophecy. Uh, 
what if we looked at a book in the New Testament and there was only one prophecy in it that was fulfilled? Would that still validate God's activity? Would it still validate his word? Yes, it would. So Matthew has many. The letter to the Romans has many. If a book or gospel had only one fulfilled, we would say that's still God's word. So remember our top-down approach. All scripture is inspired. The one who heard it first, he thought it was the scripture. The one who heard it second knew that he was writing. Then there's the unity of scripture, that all the scripture says the same thing. And then finally, that there's power in even one fulfilled prophecy. Because it still means that God guided and directed history to get to that point. The Bethlehem is a perfect is a perfect example. A, a, a pagan ruler orders a census to be taken. That's how that's how Joseph and Mary got there. Well, who ordered the census? The pagan ruler. But that's perfectly fit with the purposes of God, isn't it? Where are you going to find him? In Bethlehem, because David was of the house and lineage of David. Or Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. That's where you're going to find him. But, uh, but uh, uh, right, whatever his name is, Quirinius, right? He says, oh, I need a census. i got to find out how many people. And that's where they go. And while they were there, the time was accomplished that she should have a child. And that starts the whole thing. So we're on a good pace. We might finish. Next is the broken union and the false shepherds, verse 14 to 17. The, the money is thrown back. All the similarities between Judas and Zechariah are right there. And then here's the broken union and the false shepherds destruction. Here goes the second staff broken in verse 14. From gracious protection and union to destruction and scattering. Two formal symbolic pictures of God breaking his relationship with the evil people and their shepherds. The nation was dissolved in the past and it will be dissolved in the future. When Haggai and Zechariah came along, you remember the, the people were down. They said, it's not time to, to build. We, we've got to build our own. This place is in shambles. And God had to come and say, my spirit's with you and I'm with you and I'm going to help you. They were down. But it's because the nation was destroyed. And the future permanent dissolution will be during the expansion of the gospel of the true shepherd, prophet, priest, and king. So Jesus dies. He raises. The gospel starts to go out. And here come the Romans and everything that Jesus said, your house will be left to you desolate. There's nothing left. There's not one stone left on another. Then Zechariah in this enacted parable in verse 15 gets a command to be a foolish shepherd. Take up the instruments of a foolish shepherd. The right instruments have been broken. Favor and union broken. The instruments of a foolish shepherd include their oppressive and self-seeking ways and their disconnection from the flock. 
False shepherds are disconnected from the flock. They really don't care uh, about the sheep. Notice verse 16. I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land. And look what the, the shepherd does. Won't care for those who face it. Uh, annihilation. He won't seek the young. He won't heal the broken. He won't sustain the one standing. So if you're broken, he's not going to come to help you. And if you're healthy and you're standing and you're okay, he's not going to come to help you either. But what will he do? Consume the flesh of the fat of the sheep. That's the false shepherds. Verse 4, and their own shepherds do not spare them. Now, I promised at prayer meeting I, I wouldn't get on the, uh, the, the false prophet hobby horse anymore. But that's what false prophets do. And then Yahweh raises a wicked shepherd uh, to be destroyed. I am going to raise up a shepherd, and this gets us to verse 16, who will not care, not seek the young, not heal the broken, not sustain the one standing, even the healthy ones. But what will they do? Consume the fat of the sheep. Remember, it was for monetary gain. Remember the Pharisees and scribes, they loved money. Let's set up this thing in the temple where we can get a lot of money. Let's buy and sell in the temple. Let's do that. It says they'll consume the fat of the sheep and they'll tear off their hooves. They'll, they'll just rip the thing away. They exercise the most cruelty. And their, their picture is that of devouring animals. There's a couple of pictures in the Minor Prophets of lions. And lions just tear. And that is what these men do. And then finally... God's sword destroys the worthless shepherd. He calls him a foolish shepherd. In verse 15, uh, a worthless shepherd, and he pronounces a woe. Woe to the worthless shepherd who does what? Forsakes the flock. If you look at John chapter 10, you know that's a worthless shepherd because Jesus says the worthless shepherd doesn't stay there. He flees. When there's danger, he flees. He gets out of there. There's around 50 woes pronounced in the prophets. This is one of them. Jesus pronounced the woes against the Pharisees, the scribes, and the lawyers because they were the false shepherds of that day. And what does he do? He forsakes the flock. And what will happen? There will be complete destruction of this person. He uses a picture of an arm and an eye and takes away the arm and the eye. The uh, Everything uh, will be just... Uh, cut down uh, the evil servant the evil servant in the parable said i didn't do anything with the stuff you gave me here's your here's your talent back he says you're wicked the tree in the parable that didn't bear any fruit what does god say i'm going to give it one more thing after that cut it down with well, it well that's what the lord is doing well brethren chapter 11 has been a challenge for all of us uh, and yet do you, see, do you still see Christ? All the false shepherds were removed. He got rid of the three of them in, in one day. But what do we have now? A prophet, priest, and a king. What do we have now? We have the Savior who is the object, who is the, the answer, who is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. And this may be difficult to sort through. And you still might say that Jeremiah said it or Zechariah said it. 
but there's one thing for sure that Jesus Christ came and is the Savior. That's right. and, that, and that's what all these things uh, will look towards. Uh, Yahweh will save his people through thick and thin, through false shepherds, through any kind of difficulty. We will always be able to ask the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nothing. Paul says nothing. God's people were separated by idolatry, by all these things. But there was those who understood this is God's work. And brethren, we need in our day to understand that God still works. He could judge the country and one day we wouldn't be surprised. And let's also look to the Savior constantly fulfilled all the prophecies by the place he was born, by the things he did during his life, by just getting on a donkey and going down a hill. He fulfilled every word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this study in Zechariah. We are fascinated, Lord, by your way to literally move history. We are amazed about this enacted parable that has so many uh, uh, ties in that Judas and Zechariah in, in some ways did almost exactly the same things. We pray, Lord, too, that you would help us to see that all the scripture speaks in unity uh, about our Savior. We're thankful for those things that are fulfilled in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.